Side Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. September the 20th, 114 p.m. The event. The voices lingered in Hoffman's head, scattering every thought he desperately tried to follow. The energy of the mysterious wave dissipated gradually, but his breathing grew shallow and quick to match the quickening of his heart. Panic replaced the tingling in his fingers as the last of the magic from the event left him. The last time he had felt anything that closely matched this powerful bombardment of energy was on the train when he and his brother had come through to Malifaux. Ryle's smile filled him with hope. It always had. Big and strong, Ryle had everything Hoffman wished he could have for himself. Coupled with an athletic prowess few could match, Ryle had a social ease which made him friends with every man he met. Hoffman studied his brother with awe as he could shift his mannerisms and colloquialisms with unconscious alacrity. Perhaps not the most naturally handsome man in London, he nevertheless was the envy of most men when he could walk into any pub or society, and without intent, soon find himself in the midst of the most sought-after women in the city. Everyone envied Ryle's style and embrace of life. Hoffman was no exception. However, so many people thought his jealousy must run deep. It did not. Hoffman revered his older brother and followed him everywhere. He looked upon him with unadulterated respect and love and would never have wished him less. Ryle was almost unaware of his good fortune and stood at the apex of humility. In fact, he was driven most to protect his younger brother, even at the cost of his own position, and Hoffman knew that in many ways he owed his life to Ryle. Hoffman shook off the reverie of his brother as he once was, 
chastising himself for allowing the thoughts to lull him with happier times, distracting him from his current struggle. He pulled himself over, and his mind reeled. His eyes remained heavy, and even when he managed to force them open, he had trouble focusing his vision. A coughing spasm racked him as he fought to push himself upright. Smoke and ash from the nearby burning observatory dusted his shoulders like snow. Once, when they were young, Hoffman watched Ryle and some of the other boys playing rugby in the back of their parents' expansive country estate. It was late fall, and the boys' breath came visibly in clouds about their faces as they ran in the brisk air. All of them ignored the cold as they wore their uniforms cut just above the knees. They'd slap and rub their bare skin to warm it between plays, and even though their skin was pink and sore, they played on. Hoffman watched from the comfort of an upper room, his chin resting on both palms as he sat in his wheelchair, parked before the window, wiping the condensation from the window with a handkerchief. Ryle looked up to see his younger brother watching them, laughing and playfully chiding one another as they debated the imaginary lines forming the field's boundary between each play. They could never agree on the lines, and playful shoves led to wrestling matches between sides that looked, for all intent, exactly like the rugby plays they debated over. They laughed and clapped one another on the backs. When Hoffman rubbed his window clean again, he could not see Ryle down amongst the others. Although they shoved and writhed about in manly play, Ryle was always quickly identifiable. Thick flakes of snow began to fall, enveloping the players in a sheet of soft ice. A hand fell upon his shoulder, causing him to jump. Sorry, chap, Ryle said with a laugh. Hoffman smiled. He hadn't noticed Ryle come into the house and enter the study. No need for you to hide in here alone. We could use a referee. He motioned to the boys, knocking into one another again amidst the thickly falling snow. His hand squeezed Hoffman's shoulder. Hoffman jumped as the desiccated arm of the dead reached out from the debris near his face, grabbing him at the shoulder as sickly grey ash fell. He screamed out and batted the bony fingers clutching at his neck and frantically pulled himself away, dragging his limp legs through dust and rubble. Scrambling back against a block of upturned flagstone, he shielded his face from attack by the undead. He whimpered and shook, finally peering over his forearm after several long moments without the expected assault. He rubbed his eyes quickly, unable to focus, preparing to fight one of the unholy risen. His hands curled into rather ineffectual fists, and his teeth chattered as his fear mounted. The hand reaching for him was truly that of a dead man, its face just visible from the edge of the rubble, but it showed no sign of reanimation as its mouth was agape, and its dry eyes had shrunken within its deep sockets. Even the position of its body demonstrated no real indication that it was intentionally reaching for him. The anxiety and adrenaline got the best of him, and his sobbing turned into a weak, nervous laugh, as despite himself he was overcome by fear. He drew himself against a large group of upturned cobblestone protruding from what was part of the street. It had been broken free long ago, though. He pulled himself to it, and slapped each side of his face as smartly as he could given his exhausted state. "'Pull yourself together, old boy,' he said aloud, rubbing his eyes once more. His hands tingled, and a thin arc of pale violet electricity crackled faintly down his arm and across his chest. 
the blue lightning arced from passenger to passenger, as Ryle flailed on the floorboards of the train that ill-fated day they rode through the breach. Everyone sat frozen in time, unmoving as the thick bands of electricity buzzed and popped, moving from person to person, coursing through their chests and out of their skulls as the bolts sought another person. Hoffman wasn't locked in time like the others, but reaching his hand toward his brother took terrifyingly long moments. Ryle, though, flailed in acceleration as the lightning arced from every passenger to strike him. When the great tendril of electricity rose up and struck him like a whip-crack, he bucked and howled, contorting off the wooden bench and around the floor, much like Ryle had been, though less severely. Still, the pain was intense, and he howled, unable to control his spasming limbs. Shaking off his stupor, his eyes darted from one nearby object to another, sure that an insurmountable adversary moved amidst the thick ash and settling dust. He soon discovered that there were a substantial number of dead bodies in various stages of decomposition surrounding him, but none seemed to move or attract his attention. He found a small wrench in his back pocket, and used it as a weapon to club what might have been the smallest Malifaux rat in the city. It was small even by Earthside standards. He did not hesitate to kill it. The plague still ravaged, and the creature could kill him without realizing it, he justified. In reality, he felt so weak and ineffectual, and needed a moment of control to right himself. As the ash from the exploded building created a softening of the early morning light and sound, muffling everything, his sense of isolation and seclusion was heightened. The bodies of the dead lay strewn beneath rubble and debris, and some had merely collapsed in a heap. The bodies represented the full range of decomposition as a testament to their reanimation and control of a resurrectionist master. In equal number were the fresh remains of youthful gang members and other innocent townspeople that had come to wage battle, fervently following the command of a strange and sinister man Hoffman had only heard of through rumour. None of the bodies seemed to move in that unholy state of reanimation, but Hoffman could not shake the anxious twitching of his blurry eyes as every small movement near him caught his attention, only to be disturbed by some other imagined adversary in his peripheral vision. He could hear no voices of the machinery around him now. It was the first time since his arrival in Malifaux less than a month earlier, only having a vague awareness of his full potential over the manipulation of machines. He didn't understand the meaning of this sudden loss of ability. He tried again, attempting to reach into the odd space of a construct's alien psyche, speaking in strange images and whispers. Movement before him jerked his vision toward the same dark-fleshed corpse that he had imagined reached out to him. Blinking rapidly to clear the fog, he saw it unmoving, its eyes having rolled up into its skull, mouth agape and long fingers pointing. Another crackle of purple electricity arced from the braces he bore on either leg and danced around his torso and up his throat. The blue lightning in the car subsided as the train ground to a halt digging through the grey dirt beside the track. Screams of passengers replaced the electrical crackling and poppling, and Ryle's screaming died along with the energy that racked him. But the sound of Ryle's horrified plight echoed within his mind as he slipped into the dark fog. He fought the drowning sensation of sleep. Struggling to come to the surface of consciousness, 
to call for someone to help his brother. You did this, he heard a woman shriek. Arcanist! His eyes opened briefly, and with great effort he sought her, framing her features with the blur of his sinking mind. She cowered, pointing with mouth agape at the two men that had entered the car, standing just beyond him and his brother. She was filled with fear and anger. Arcanists! She screamed again in accusation. One of them ended her life for the crack of his pistol, momentarily silencing the others. He couldn't hold on any longer and succumbed to the weight of sleep that bore down upon him, watching as the villains reached for him as his eyes involuntarily closed. He jerked when the crashing weight of a peacekeeper construct cracked the mortar between the cobblestones beside him, the ripples of the tremor rippling through his torso and rattling his teeth. He cried out as he looked upon the face of Ramos above him, lost in the broken vision of his mind and replaced by the image of the arcanist he blamed for the attack upon him in the train. Arcanist! Hoffman howled, still confused about what was real. Ramos reached down to him with his right arm and grabbed hold of the writhing violet tendril of electricity. He pulled it from Hoffman's throat, and it hissed and crackled as it flailed. It burned, and Ramos' leather glove melted away along with the thick canvas of his overcoat, exposing the thin pistons and spinning gears of a mechanical arm. He unleashed his own electrical fire through that exposed limb, and the pale electricity evaporated in a small, thunderous clap. Hoffman's perception cleared, and his fear eased as the arcanist terrorist from the train morphed into the familiar face and voice of his friend, Dr. Ramos, who answered the accusation of arcanists still hanging in the air. Yes, Ramos said, but we're not what you think us to be. Come. What? Hoffman asked. The purple energy no longer crackled around him, and he could think clearer, but he still doubted his perception and Ramos' statement made no sense to him. Come, Ramos said, reaching out with his mechanical arm to help Hoffman stand. We will speak, but this is not the place for it. Faint morning light penetrated the ashy haze, and the brass cylinders of Ramos' arm gleamed. Hoffman's hand stretched, but as he saw the oil hydraulic shaft and silently spinning servos, now exposed from the cloth and leather that had been burned away by the lightning, he withdrew his hand in a snap. You're an arcanist, he said, now fully aware of whom he addressed. Yes. But we are not what you think we are. It made striking sense, and Hoffman reeled from the truth and the ridiculous clarity of his deception. The machines of his laboratory and throughout the mines were so clearly beyond mere mechanical science. The lumbering behemoth Steamborg Hank, a human and machine abomination followed every small command from Ramos without pause or question. That was no coincidence he worked in the mines. And his own brother, Ryle, turned into a monstrosity. Hoffman had ignored the clear truth, obvious now, out of desperation for it not to be so. Ramos was not just an arcanist, but an abomination himself, of grafting technology and twisted magics one of the same abominations that Hoffman was charged to find and apprehend. Of course, the Charter was far more specific in addressing the abuses of grafting technology, and articulated prosthetics were common enough and well within the rights of anyone. Hoffman made a leap in blame and hatred. 
still lying on the broken street. His legs limped before him. He said gravely, Victor Ramos, you are under arrest for crimes against the natural order. Do not be a fool, he interrupted, growing quickly irritated. You are charged with illegal grafting according to Guild Charter 425, subsection 2, and conspiring against Guild Order in organizing the terrorist group. I'm warning you, Hoffman, Ramos said with terrifying authority. We are not what you have been made to believe. But I will not have you undo what I have begun, what I have accomplished. Hoffman did not notice their presence before, but two great constructs stood ominously behind Ramos. One was a humanoid giant known as a guardian, its excessively large sword resting upon its massive iron shoulder. It was one of the earliest constructs designed and built, largely under the supervision of Ramos, and it stood beside his most recent construct design, the giant arachnid that stood higher than a man's waist, and was easily as long as a man was tall. Ramos made no movement nor word of command, but the two stepped forward toward him. Every construct in Malifaux heard your call when that wave hit, Ramos said. Even I, enveloped in that same powerful inundation of ether, his mechanical hand clutched into a fist before his face. Even I could hear your plea above all the screaming voices in my head. So powerful. So much potential. But I cannot bear to lose what we have fought so hard to accomplish. Hoffman had nowhere to go and wouldn't be able to get there even if he had. The small wrench in his hand might as well have been a feather against the two constructs coming for him. He could not describe his ability to perceive the metal and machinery around him with his mind. It was very different from holding something in his hands, and much more like an emotional response. He felt comforted by the presence of machinery. Reaching out with his mind, he found his hunter construct behind him, standing a silent watch. He knew it was inoperable, twisted with ancient metal of fences and sewer grates from around him as the purple ether of the event had infused him with unbridled power. It now stood motionless as a deformed and abstract statue, looking only vaguely like the feline hunter it had once been, now standing bipedally and more massive than ever. He could sense no sign of its once quick processing logic engine. Far above him, however, he felt a watcher construct, and he latched onto it with his mind, calling it to him. Another watcher circled the debris of the observatory, obeying its last command, and he summoned that one to him as well. Neither would help against Ramos, a guardian, and a giant arachnid, but when they were close to him, he could use their processing power to think much more clearly himself. Ramos' construct stepped forward, moving toward Hoffman, blocking any possible escape. Ramos would win. He was an arcanist operating right in the middle of the guild. He was responsible for the mines, the most important reason anyone was in the godforsaken place to begin with. And he was responsible for Ryle. Hoffman's fear was replaced with hate and anger at the betrayal and lies. He yelled, just a single syllable of his mounting rage and his mind beat against the simple logic engine of the Guardian just in front of Ramos. It took a final step forward, its footfall reverberating through the ground as its vast weight struck. Ramos realized too late that he had underestimated Hoffman, and he jumped back as the great sword clattered to the ground, 
and its armoured hand snatched at its former master, no longer in control of it. He realised his loss and made no effort to reclaim it from Hoffman, instead focusing upon the large arachnid scampering forward a step and then back, confused as Hoffman pressed his will against it too. Where Hoffman's power manifested more subconsciously, Ramos had to weave his commands on the current of ether that coursed around all things. Hoffman did possess great power, he had no doubt, but his manipulation of those invisible forces of magic was certainly substantial as well. Ramos struggled to control the arachnid, but the guardian's hand wrapped around his torso and squeezed, disrupting his focus. The circular saw blade mounted flat against its abdomen came free from its safety locks and spun, cutting through the air. The guardian lifted him, pulling him closer. Ramos commanded the arachnid to remain stationary, and it obeyed him, but Hoffman fought for control over its weapon, and it pivoted on its hinged accordion arm, spinning now vertically as the arm extended toward Ramos. Ramos rarely felt fear, and never succumbed to panic, but he was accustomed to control and authority in all of his dealings. Coming here to rescue Hoffman, he did not expect to so quickly lose control to the seemingly helpless man. The arachnid's blade drew closer, and he felt fear. He stilled his emotions and focused, drawing the ether into a controllable weapon. Blue electricity formed around his neck, and he channeled it into a blast that would ignite the construct's internal mechanism, frying it in a great electrical fire. But at Hoffman's mental command, the metal plates in the circular porthole in its chest popped open, exposing a faceted amber crystal. It burst into a rapidly flashing strobe of brilliant yellow light, blinding Ramos just as he released the electricity. The tendrils of energy snaked down his arm, but he lost control of it, and it popped out of existence with little more than the spark of static electricity. The blade drew closer. Ramos grabbed the Guardian's wrist with his own mechanical hand, and pressurized the pistons of his arm to squeeze, crushing the armature of the Guardian's arm, attempting to break free of it. The metal of its wrist buckled and bent, and he crushed it so that gears clanged against one another, and the pneumatic seals ruptured, releasing a blast of steam shooting from the side. Still, it did not release him. He twisted desperately but ineffectually to block the circular saw, and could barely reach his mechanical right arm around to block the blade and it bounced aside in a shower of sparks as the tempered blade cut through the softer brass casing of his fist. He would have died at the hands of his own constructs, if not for Ryle. The towering hulk lumbered out of the shadows and fell upon the large, spidery construct, his own hydraulic fist several times more powerful and formidable than Ramos's. It left the rounded head of the construct dented with a deep depression. The great hand grabbed hold of the twirling blade, and the teeth dug through his armoured palm, but he twisted sharply and the blade snapped, half of it flying into the leg of the Guardian with a clang. Hoffman, having finally managed to struggle to an awkward stand, recoiled at the vaguely recognisable features that were once so enviable. Now hulking and more monstrous than human, the damaged flesh stretched over bone and muscle wouldn't heal against the wires, metal bolts and tubes of copper and brass. Where Dr. Ramos had integrated the mechanical components to save Ryle, the flesh adjoining it withered into a sickly, pallid grey. Around his upper chest, the skin appeared like drying leather stretched taut, 
exposing ribs and his collarbone as it shriveled and died. Metal plates were screwed into his flesh at different places, and the surrounding flesh was a beaten purple that darkened into grey. Ryle lifted his massive bulk from the large arachnid, sparks and steam issuing from beneath the damaged plate above its cracked logic engine. If Hoffman could have somehow overlooked the decay of Ryle's body, the severity of the grotesque visage before him made him recoil in horror. Much of the initial trauma through the breach had been to Ryle's brain, and large portions of his skull had been cut away, now replaced by iron and brass. A large gauge where his right ear had been now marked the steam pressure within that drove the pistons and mechanical organs throughout his body. Numerous tubes protruded from the back of his head to attach at various points to organs and appendages, allowing him to function now in a parody of humanity. What revolted Hoffman most was oddly the remaining flesh of his lower jaw. With his throat torn away and replaced with flexible tubing, his jaw rested agape and thick foam drained from each side of his mouth. The surrounding flesh was connected at every side by metal, and it was drawn tight in desiccation, fully exposing Ryle's yellowing teeth and ashen gums. Hoffman staggered away from his brother. Unable to look upon him, he held up his palm towards Ryle to block the sight. Pressing his mind against machines was an ability growing more and more familiar to him, and he commanded the shambling construct to disengage. He thought of the lab where he'd spied Ryle spending most of his time, standing motionless in place for days on end, and he silently commanded his brother to return there. Ryle did not comply. The Gatling gun, heavy enough to require two men to carry, but held by Ryle in just one hand, clattered on the rubble, and he lumbered toward Hoffman who struggled to step away. The brothers were a sad mirror of stiff scuffling, each walking with effort. Stop, Hoffman commanded aloud, pressing his will once more against the artificial logic engine integrated into the brain of his brother. Ryle walked on, his arms outstretched toward Hoffman, the gears and servos clicking as his great fist uncurled the metal talons reaching for him. Hoffman took one final awkward step back, pulling the strap of his leg brace desperately with his thin hand, and screamed as Ryle's hands fell upon him. He turned away from his brother, eyes clenched shut, awaiting his attack. Brother! He felt the push of a machine against his mind. He saw snowflakes thick and heavy falling in the dim light of the moon, struggling to penetrate the cold precipitation. Ryle? Ryle! He called desperately into the depths of that dark night. The silhouette of a man walked just beyond the edge of his perception. Ryle! In the snowfall of his waking dream, Hoffman needed no braces to help him stand, and no paralysis kept him from running toward the dim shape of his brother. Yet as he ran, the snow fell thicker, and the light of the moon waned until the ghostly outline of his brother was enveloped by the snow and darkness. Ryle! he screamed again, and his voice echoed into the night of his dream. He fell to his knees, feeling the cold against his ankles and shins. His eyes were clenched tightly as tears rolled down each cheek. The wind blew wet against his face, and he heard the whisper, 
You can help me, brother. He opened his eyes, and the dream was gone. He was on his knees as ash continued to fall from the burning observatory beyond Ramos, still held aloft by the Guardian. Ryle had released his grip on him, allowing him to fall to his knees on the broken paving stones in the quarantine zone, and walked away. Hoffman regarded Ramos, and the two understood the conflict was abruptly over. Where was he going? Ramos said. Back to my lab, I'd guess. Why? Why doesn't he stay here, with me? He's ashamed. The realization struck Hoffman. He feels. He still feels. Yes. Though vaguely. Ramos finally freed himself from the grip of the Guardian and straightened his overcoat, dusting himself as he stepped toward Hoffman. And less every day. He cannot bear for you to see him. I think I saw him. In my mind. I can keep him alive, of course. But his humanity, his spirit, I fear those are beyond me. You, though, you may be the one able to help him. Yes. That is what he said to me. How can I do that? Bramos pulled him to his feet and helped him stabilize his balance. I'm unsure. But I can assist you in figuring it out. You may be strong, but I'm not without my uses also. No one had ever used strong to describe Hoffman and he was filled with determination. Come, Ramos said. Let's return to the lab. No, Hoffman said. Justice and the judge are in there. He hitched a thumb to the burning remains of the once massive observatory. They're dead, Ramos said flatly. Hoffman nearly protested, but caught himself. Likely, he agreed. I concur. But that section there, he said with a point, is mostly brick, little timber. It's near the front foyer where she attacked the risen throng. She may be there, if only her body. We must try. Ramos considered the area, smoking timbers and debris piled high. He held his mechanical hand before his face. The heat of the fire and the breeze of the wind dared upon the metal as the fringe of his coat smouldered near his shoulder. He was exposed. And if more guild operatives came for the rescue operation, there would be little excuse he could offer. Cold, calculating circumstances rarely worked beyond his planned control. You're right, Hoffman, he said. We must try. Send in the watchers. Help me salvage some of the remains of your statue here he said, pointing to the twisted remains of the hunter, and the large arachnid. What are you doing? Making some helpers. More eyes. A lot of legs to help navigate the rough terrain. Within minutes of tearing apart the larger constructs, Ramos had a small oblong ball of wires, thin gears, and joined rods. With a twist of its torso, he brought the small arachnid to life. Its single eye glowing blue as the makeshift logic engine lit within its hastily crafted body. Ramos gave it a simple edict and basic set of command parameters, and it scurried away across the debris, unhindered by the wreckage. Working together, 
the two quickly made a small army of arachnids released upon the smoking observatory. It took little time for Hoffman to understand that justice would not be found, no matter how many mechanical arachnids they made. They were efficient in their task, scurrying around the building's wreckage, unimpeded as if it were open ground. When they detected any sign of a body, they could scuttle down through the narrowest gap between brick and timber. The Guardian, though a first-generation construct with a crushed forearm, still proved equally invaluable, as it excavated the debris with speed and ease. The futility was not in their inability to find the bodies. It was in the vast number of bodies they continued to find in the rubble. They found hundreds of corpses nearly everywhere they dug, all in various stages of decomposition. The darker, more dry and leathery flesh were clear to the two scientists as the broken remains of undead, risen to obey a resurrectionist powerful enough to reanimate a great throng of the unholy creatures. They called it resurrection, which infuriated Hoffman and most other settlers. It was a horrible mockery against them. The reanimated corpses were once friends, relatives, comrades. They were made to do the unnatural bidding of someone that defied not just the law of the guild, but of a much higher natural law. The remains of the walking dead were expected, and seeing them now finally at rest brought a strange comfort to Hoffman. But among the remains were a disturbing number of young bodies, and some quite old, both oddly out of place in the battle that had ensued early in the morning. Hoffman thought they might all have been members of a unified gang that had descended upon the observatory to lay claim to it. Looking at the bodies now, he saw that the gang members represented only a portion of the most recently dead. They must have been unnaturally compelled to attack, he concluded. The realization that they were victims, innocents, made to act at the will of another made him swoon. His eyes fell upon the remains of a mere child, just a boy, and he wretched. Clearing his throat, spitting into the rubble, he called to Ramos nearby. You were right, he said. We cannot find them here. He knew Ramos was anxious to depart, could see the mounting agitation on his features and scowling expression. I'm ready to leave this damnable place. Ramos met his eyes and suddenly heard his surrender. Rather than agree, the notion that they could not succeed irritated him even more. His thick brows furrowed, and his lips pursed. I'm not done yet, he said in a low voice, more to himself than to Hoffman. Always calculating, always determined to overcome every obstacle, Ramos could not stop until he won. Demonstrating the value of his sharp mind, he called all the spiders back to him. He called to Hoffman. Too many bodies to find a specific two. We're looking for the wrong thing. Hoffman was puzzled until Ramos said, Their prime edict is always to seek out soul stones in the mines. Why defy their programming? He released them, and they all scampered quickly to the same large mound not fifteen yards away. They poked and scratched at the debris. Hoffman smiled at Ramos, who winked at him. Of course Lady Justice would have excess soul stones on her, he agreed appreciatively. Ramos was a man that stayed one step ahead of others, Hoffman realized. He was also a man that could not give up once he put his mind to something. He had to succeed, could not accept defeat. It was a great strength, 
and probably his Achilles' heel as well. As the Guardian laboured at the excavation, Ramos said, They're likely dead, like the others around us. Likely, Hoffman agreed. It was with that expectation that both men jumped when the Guardian pulled one massive slab of concrete aside, and the blast of a pistol rang out from the hall, the bullet striking the Guardian square in its head. It too seemed to jump, but as it dropped the slab, a sword flew from the hole like an arrow, sinking into its chest. The chain attached to the sword's hilt went taut, and with a jerk the sword came free and flew back into the hole. The Guardian spluttered and jerked, and two blasts of steam whistled from the deep laceration in its chest, and bright sparks popped from the hole in its head. It fell backward, sliding down the mound. Not so dead after all, Ramos said. Thin bands of electricity arced across the metal rods of his mechanical arm, but Hoffman motioned for him to wait. Judge, he called, it is Officer Hoffman. Are you hurt? There was no reply. If he were too injured, the judge might not remember him, even with the identifiable accent given how new he was to the guild. I'm here with Dr. Ramos, he said. There was no answer. Hoffman struggled up the side of the rubble, his leg harness catching against some protruding debris, and he cursed. Half scared to death, the judge would kill him. He peered cautiously over the edge of the hole. Sure enough, the sword pointed at him, and at its base was mounted his pistol. The judge's head was tilted back, and his facial bandana had been torn away, exposing skin that looked more like the undead they had unearthed. It oozed around thick scabs, and his right jaw and teeth were visible through gaping holes. Two thin strands of flesh remained from his cheek to just above his jaw. Blood from a recent blow to his head caked in his eyes, making him nearly as blind as Lady Justice, whom he cradled in the crook of his free arm. Scratches and long lacerations marked her flesh, but she was beautiful still. Like the bandana of the judge that protected her blindly, her blindfold had been torn aside, and her vacant eyes stared unblinking and milky white. She remained motionless, and both looked dead. Her right arm was twisted too far around and back, clearly broken, probably crushed beyond healing. The fabric of her bodice was dark, but it gleamed on her side, saturated in blood. We'll get you out, Hoffman shouted. With lips nearly fully decayed from years of exposure to the vile and acidic necrotic fluids he'd encountered under his assignment, and too weak now to carefully articulate his words, Hoffman still understood him to say, Justice. Take justice. The judge struggled to look up at them, and his eyes fell upon Ramos and his exposed arm, scrutinizing him. The judge's sword fell as he succumbed finally to unconsciousness.
not to worry. I'll have a second story for you in but only a moment's time. I hope you will allow me to get serious for just a moment. It is unavoidable. The elephant in the room, if you will. We all experienced an event in the past few weeks. Some will claim they saw a red comet fall from the sky, followed by a wave washed through everything it touched. I cannot lend any credence to those claims. After all, so many bizarre things happen here day to day. It really isn't my place to be pondering what happened. What needs to be dealt with is what to do now. So, I would like to request a favour from all of you listeners now, if I may be so bold. If you spot anyone manifesting previously unseen magical powers, exercise caution. Bid fireballs or merely opening a lock without the aid of a key. These people could be dangerous. What we know for certain are two things. Firstly, that our awakened magical capabilities are directly linked to the event. Think about it. Does it not seem suspicious they have gained these abilities out of nowhere? And secondly, they are not healthy to be around. Maintain a distance and avoid contact at all costs. Anyone with purple and silver striped eyes should be reported with the utmost speed. Keep that in mind for me, would you listeners? To return the favour, I give you another story at Death's Door. Death's Door September 20th The Event At the Point of Impact Francisco drew a foot forward, bracing himself on the ground, cradling Padita's head in the crook of his left arm. We're in trouble, she had said moments earlier, and then stiffened as solid as a knotwood plank. She stared beyond him with eyes still covered in a shroud of black and purple with occasional swirls of silver like a brief glimpse of a comet in the night sky. Her breathing was so short and shallow he could scarcely tell whether she was alive. His pistol drawn, he held it gingerly as he pulled a strand of hair from her face, stuck to her cheek by a thin film of sweat. Several paces away, between them and the gaping hole that stretched for miles eastward, stood Santiago, his feet firmly planted apart. Screeching and bellowing howls echoed from the pit as if the very gates of hell had been opened. Don't worry, Cisco, he bellowed. Whatever comes out of that hole would have to kill me twice before I let it by. He sounded almost convincing as the far surface near the edge of the great chasm continued to break apart and fall, creating an ever-growing jagged pit that stretched on and on, swallowing rock and tree like the insatiable jaws of an unholy god. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of creatures clambered up the side of the sheer rock wall, exposed to the rising sun for the first time in centuries. The Ortegas could hear them drawing nearer as the shrieking grew louder, more distinct. They heard the falling rocks clatter, dislodged by the climbing creatures. Clacking claws and low, rumbling moans soon joined the wild shrieking. What's coming, Cisco? 
Nino asked beside him, fidgeting nervously with his rifle. Don't know, Sisko said as calmly as he could. Move off a ways, boy. You're more valuable behind cover anyways. He just hoped they might buy some time for Nino to hightail it out of there. Francisco considered running too, but knew they'd not get far having to carry Perdita. Nino hesitated, but Francisco said, Go on now. Get a good shot back there a ways. And the young man reluctantly withdrew. Come on, you sons of bitches! Santiago bellowed at the hole. Let's see what you got! Francisco hugged his sister close to him and said to her, I'm sorry, Perdita. You shouldn't even be out here. Maybe none of us should. Sounds like we're in for a hell of a time, though. Could use your guns as long as you're here, too. He sighed and then cocked his peacebringer, loaded with the witched bullets created by Crid in the Witch Hunter Division. You always manage to get by on your own, he said to her. Let's see if we can get you through this. He leveled the gun on the lip of the chasm before Santiago. He wondered what Abuela would say about them. Probably a string of profanity about their reckless irresponsibility. He smiled weakly. He could not have prepared himself for what came out of the pit. He half expected some Nephilim monstrosity, but a thickly muscled forearm rose up and drove taloned fingers deep into the moist dirt beside the edge and pulled a creature above the side that looked at first human as its head and vacant eyes rose. But its lower jaw was missing, clearly torn from its head as the dried flesh had hardened into a jagged edge around its neck and below its cheek. Even the throat and a great portion of its upper chest were gone, leaving an open cavity exposed to the spine at its back. It could not be living, and as it pulled itself further beyond the edge, Francisco saw the machinery connected to it, driving the physical remains like a grotesque abomination. But he had seen guild sketches on grafting abominations that turned the stomach and led to the creation of Hoffman's Charter and Division. What he saw before him was something more vile, and, most disturbing of all, it looked old. Perhaps over a hundred years, near the time of the first breach opening, the large barrel drum embedded into its back looked more like raw iron beaten into shape from a forge. No furnace was visible, and no steam issued from the exhaust pipes or vents, but its every move was accentuated by an audible whisper of air released or sucked into the mechanical system. It righted itself on the soft ground, still moist, though most of the standing water in the area had quickly drained over the side of the pit and down into its dark depths. As it stood upright, its entire torso bent backwards so that its face aimed straight up. Whether it carried too much weight on the machinery integrated into its back, or it had become broken and deformed, Francisco could not tell. Santiago neither cared nor hesitated as he fired his peacebringer, striking it in the shoulder. It too did not hesitate as it shuffled toward him, seemingly unfazed and unconcerned about the wound. He fired once more, and it toppled silently to the ground and made no further movement. The two brothers waited expectantly for it to rise again, but it did not. Santiago glanced over his shoulder, and Francisco still cradling his sister. That was easy, he said. Si, but neither took comfort in it. The strange shrieking and howling rose from the chasm. Countless more were climbing the sheer walls of the hole, desperate like moths to reach the light in their otherwise dark existence. Three more erupted from the pit at once, charging Santiago. Their bodies reached distinctly different, 
and bore strikingly different mechanical apparatus and various removed body parts. One was man-sized and missing not only its left arm, but its entire head as well. It looked directly towards Santiago with its one good arm outstretched. Another was a remarkably fast creature that had its head, torso, and both arms intact, but was severed at the waist, dragging part of its ancient apparatus connected just below the end of its desiccated flesh, as it also bound towards Santiago with its arms propelling it like a jackrabbit. The brothers made quick work of them, and Nino, hidden away behind them, took the third. He fired again at another strange creature coming over the edge. More came quickly. Come on, Santiago bellowed. Come on, you hijos de putas. They fired almost without aiming, and reloaded as quickly. But the inhuman creatures kept coming. They were easily dispatched, but within moments of the appearance of the first ones, the edge of the pit was thick with twisted horrors climbing over themselves to get to the Ortegas. Soon there was a low mound of their corpses that even more clambered over. It took little time for the Ortegas to determine the single spot each odd abomination had where the Mechanica drove and powered it. Their guns rang out, echoing through the forested region behind them and down into the dark pit before them. They fired as rapidly as possible, but reloading was slower than they could afford. It was while reloading that these partial remains of forgotten corpses overwhelmed Santiago. They leapt upon him, raking dirt-encrusted nails across his cheek. One without arms bit into his thigh and he brought his knee up sharply, striking it violently, and its spine snapped. He slashed at them with the blades mounted to the handles of his pistols while Francisco and Nino fired upon them. The creatures swarmed Santiago. He struggled desperately beneath their terrible assault, and Francisco no longer aimed at all, firing randomly into the mass. Santiago could not withstand them, but he fought valiantly even as they brought him to a knee. Francisco drew himself up, setting Padita's head gently upon a bed of moss. I'm sorry, Dita, he said. He pulled his dueling sword from its sheath, firing his remaining bullets into the creatures nearest to Santiago. Nino, he called. Time for you to go. But Nino's rifle continued to bark behind them, and each of his shots were true, taking out one abomination after another. Go, he commanded once more, releasing the last of his bullets into the decayed remains of the first to reach him but he knew Nino would not leave. Probably not even after he and his brother had fallen. No. Francisco knew that Nino was a true Ortega, and he'd stubbornly stand against any adversary. Francisco's sword slashed upwards into one of the creatures, ending it with the same ease with which they'd taken out the dozens before. The blade came down in an arc, and he spun, cutting another in half as he slashed around to take another. Nino's rifle went silent. Perhaps he fled after all, Francisco thought. However, Nino had exhausted his bullets. To his credit, every shot he fired had killed its target. Francisco toppled backwards as they wrapped around his legs, biting and scratching and pulling at him. The horrible abomination that finally toppled him had no arms, and the top half of its head was removed in a clean line through the bridge of its nose. Its lower jaw hung slack, and it could not bite. Francisco couldn't tell how it had even found him with no eyes, ears cut through, and open skull completely empty. It struck him with a stump of its head, whipping its torso at him faster than he thought possible. As he fell, the creature struck at him over and over like a hammer at his ribs. He struggled to push the thing aside and get his feet under him once more, 
but they pounced upon him, now tearing at his face and neck. He didn't give up, though he knew it was over. He could not see her through the abomination covering his face, but he knew they were on Perdita, too. A great whinnying bleat issued from beyond the pit's edge, like the screaming nails of a hateful schoolmarm on the blackboard, but amplified and horrible. It chilled him. The abominations upon him went rigid, frozen and inanimate like statues. Only a moment passed, and they slowly shifted, ready to resume the assault. But the screeching came reverberating out of the great chasm, now louder, closer than before. The abominations upon him reluctantly crawled or dragged themselves away, leaving him panting for breath on his back in the mud. He rolled to an elbow, grabbing his sword that had been pulled from him. Santiago, too, was left, beaten with bloody lacerations across every exposed part of his body. Pushing himself up, weak and wounded, he said, I'm not having a good day, Cisco. Despite their dire circumstances, he tried to laugh, but coughed up blood and spat it on the ground before him. The sound of hooves striking the rock rose from the chasm. A curved sickle blade lifted above the rim and sank deep into the soil and pulled taut. The grey foreleg of a horse appeared, and its hoof struck into the mud, sinking deeply as it pulled its great weight. The skin was loose and dry in death, like the other abominations. Its other foreleg struck the ground. Large patches of its flesh were removed altogether, showing flexing striations of muscle within black tubes protruding and running up its leg. A massive horse skull rose above the edge. Most of it was exposed bone but tattered remains of leathery flesh dangled from around its jaws and shoulders. Instead of a mane, metal plates overlapped down its neck, each rising to a sharp point along its back. Its eyes were empty sockets, but it leveled its head at Santiago, and twin pinpoints of bright green light flashed from the depths. It snorted loudly, and two shots of steam blasted from the open holes of its nostrils on either side of a black iron spike screwed into the bone. It heaved, and the great bulk of it surfaced. The rider's arm was merely animated bone pulling at the great scythe. It towered before Santiago. The massive horse, dead, powered by some grotesque magic that merged the corpse and the machinery, regarded him in a steady, detached stare. The rider's bare skull swiveled on a neck of dry muscle and articulated bands of metal, surveying the Ortegas and the landscape it might not have beheld for many years. It had no lower jaw, and its throat was sunken and unusable. Yet it growled a command that was a shrill hiss like a steam valve releasing a bit of excess pressure from deep within. The abominations near them scampered away. The dead rider spoke in that whistling wind to Francisco and Santiago. No doubt it tried to say something, but its words were unintelligible to them. They had interrogated many never-born, and whatever language the strange being spoke sounded distinctly different from anything they had ever heard before. It lurched forward in the saddle and bellowed in rage, the words shaking them as it howled like a gale. It raised the scythe above its head, still bellowing incomprehensibly, and that's when Nino came charging from the side, bursting from the underbrush. He screamed as he leapt high into the air. His rifle was his club and he held it back as far as he could. At the last second, he jerked it forward to strike the rider in its skull with all the might of his lithe body and incredible momentum. The rifle butt hit its head, 
and the sound of a pebble thrown against a barn door, and with about the same effect. The rider didn't flinch or seem to notice. Nino even knocked the wind out of himself as his body struck the side of the towering creature. Santiago, however, hit the monstrous figure from the other side, and he carried far more mass and momentum than his cousin. His shoulder struck the rider, and he pushed mightily against the saddle to dismount the creature, assuming it would be more assailable on its back, unable to wield that sinister scythe. The horse, unbalanced from Santiago's charge, took a step, and the rider did get knocked back, but it was much more resilient than the small abominations they could dispatch so easily. It was considerably stronger, too, not only remaining mounted, but it snatched Santiago by the neck and held him aloft by that single skeletal arm, crushing his throat while Santiago struggled and kicked, hoping to break free. It growled and spoke again, deep and hateful. Francisco charged it with his dueling sword, and the rider did nothing more than continue to berate or threaten Santiago while the horse reared, kicking Francisco as it rose and knocking him back. In the midst of the rider's speech it said, Gran Caithera which resonated within each of them. It lifted Santiago higher and shook him as he said it. Then it threw him bodily against Francisco. It spoke one last, thunderous statement, still beyond their comprehension, pointing at Pedita as if in accusation, and charged into the dense foliage of the bayou's edge, away from the dark chasm from whence it had come. The dead hooves clattered into the distance in a straight line, as though it rode with purpose. What in hell was that? Santiago said around a wheezing cough. The dark bruise marks of the rider's skeletal fingers already formed along his throat. Francisco wasted no time, and despite his aching muscles and mounting exhaustion, he snatched the rigid body of his sister from the damp vegetation. He said, I don't know what it was, but it let us live, and it bought us some time. The most before these things come back. Santiago and Nino nodded in quick agreement, and they walked hurriedly away from the gaping moor of the chasm. Truly, not one of them knew where they were in the expansive bogs, and they had no sense of direction to lead them out. But they needed no vote to agree that the best direction was to go straight away from that huge pit and as quickly as possible. So when Francisco stopped, the others looked gravely concerned. Wait, he said. You're not going to like this. We need to take one of these things back with us. Santiago snorted, like hell. Nino was too small to carry one, they all knew. And Francisco stared his brother down. Go get one, he said. Be sure it's dead. They were already dead when they came to say hi. And he scowled at Francisco, holding his ground. Santiago, he said sternly. Damn it, Cisco. If one of those things so much as tickles me, I'm going to throw you over the edge of that hole. Not that they felt any safer by it, but when he reached the Mound of Abominations, he took just a moment to cherry-pick one of the carcasses, kicking them quickly aside to find one missing its arms. He even grunted quickly over the corpse, tearing its lower jaw off and discarding it onto the pile. You don't want it to bite me, he said, jogging up with it dragging it with fingers hooked under its upper teeth. We waiting around for the dinner bell? Let's go! He was all but running through the thick growth, the others just a step behind him. September 29th 
guild enclave. Redita had not stirred since falling at the epicenter of the great wave, though the doctor studying her remained hopeful that it was only a matter of time before she would shake off the stupor and awaken. Dr. Carl Morrow, head of the psychosis and paranormal department at the guild sanitarium, stood beside her, wringing his hands as he stared at her intently. He smiled, thankful to have another prominent Ortega back in the ward, and the beautiful daughter of one of his favorite and most intricate, albeit difficult, patients, was a welcome addition to the typical menagerie he had to feed and water. Her brothers had insisted on returning her to Latigo instead of admitting her into the sanitarium, but when Abuela was brought to the city to assess her, and had to admit that even she could not help the young Perdita, they had to acquiesce and admit her. Dr. Morrow watched her eyes. Open since the event more than a week earlier, they were still swirling with purple and silver, and they never so much as twitched, staring resolutely forward. He still liked staring at them. They remained fully dilated despite differing light around her. What are you thinking about, my little Ortega? he asked her, wringing his hands more fervently, leaning closer, looking into her eyes. Within just inches of her ear, he lowered his voice to just a whisper. What's happening in that little head of yours? Within the dark fog of her mind, Perdita floated, usually unaware of herself and her surroundings. The whispering voices in her mind started to fade as she'd been carried from the sight of the serpent in the fallen red cage. The voices that consumed her mind when the purple wave hit were banished when the echoing voice of the dead rider had spoken, sending them fleeing from her mind. She fought to reclaim herself, and might have if not for her brothers bringing her here. New whispers joined the droning multitude hiding in the darkness surrounding her. Of course, she had only the briefest glimpse of those thoughts that might be wholly hers before they were again suppressed by the dark fog of whispering voices. Though she did not know she was in the guild sanitarium, she only vaguely knew who she was. Keldaroka! She heard the whispering voice above her, quiet and unintelligible. Tilgran, it said. Targran. It made no sense and she sought escape in the dark depths. Perdita. Her mind came into focus. Perdita, it whispered. So faintly she could scarcely hear it at all. Tilgran Gaithera Dao, Perdita. They told you we were dead. Who are you? The students. She could say nothing, yet conveyed her bewilderment. The students of the Kythera ruins. You went mad, they said. They would. Perhaps we did. You're here? We cannot leave. We discovered it, Perdita. What? The Kythera truth. The grave spirit. It seeks to live. It cannot live where there is life. We found the truth. Its whispering drew faint and tenuous as the other whispers in the shadows pulled this one voice away. They are freed, it said, screaming in the darkness. But its voice was so far away now, it was like a gentle gust on a calm day. All will be lost. There was a pause, and she thought it had left her as the other voices sought domination of her once more, crowding her small circle of light in the midst of the darkness. 
Soon she would be enveloped by it entirely. Tumas, it said. He knows. She blinked, and Dr. Morrow jumped, squealing. Perdita's eyes fluttered and she was gone again, her eyes closing slowly. Santiago rubbed his tired eyes as Francisco yawned. Dr. McMorning ignored them, continuing to examine a bit of the flesh pinned to the soft wood of his examining table, worn smooth by the hundreds of bodies that had lain upon it. The brothers were tired because of their days and nights at the Guild Sanitarium. They were not technically allowed to be with their sister, but their rank made it difficult to herd them out. Santiago, in particular, seemed to welcome the challenge of anyone trying to get him to go anywhere. Francisco simply outranked anyone that might have asked him to leave, so one of the two was always getting access to the ward that housed her. They had a bad feeling about her being in that place. So what's going on with Jonathan, Doc? Santiago asked abruptly, losing his patience even though they'd been there only a few minutes. McMorning gave him the creeps, just like that mousy Dr. Morrow did. McMorning regarded him coolly, and then slowly pulled a dark glove down upon his hand, stretching it tight upon each finger. There's something I don't understand, he said. That's why we brought John to you, Santiago said gruffly. McMorning gnashed his teeth. Behind him, Sebastian, his assistant, smacked his lips, smiling vacantly. Holding a power saw, the exposed blade well blackened from numerous cutting through flesh and bone. Thankfully, it was not currently in use. Yes, McMorning said. I understand. But you said it crawled out of that pit. That it's one of the hundreds like it. Many hundreds, Francisco added. He drew their attention to the apparatus attached to the base of its torso. That's powered equipment here, McMorning pointed to the steam apparatus. You said they all have this. It runs on a small steam chamber. Well, enough steam and the pressure drives small pistons in this chamber here. Then it... Right, Santiago interjected with a scowl. Steam-powered, like a peacekeeper, we know. McMorning hated him. Where's the fire chamber? Where's the water reservoir? Well, here, he pointed. But the lower half is gone, leaving the chamber empty. What makes these things work? That silenced Santiago. McMorning's mind raced as he struggled to understand the thing. Francisco said, Resurrection is creation? Certainly not, McMorning said, too sure, too quickly. He shook himself and then tried to cover, saying, well, I wouldn't think so. He pressed the flesh, cut away from the cadaver's side and pinned it to the table. It was dry leather. This is too old. Many centuries. Many. Studying other discarded remains that were animated and brought here from other conflicts with resurrectionists, it seems that the resurrectionists need a much more recently dead cadaver. That part was true. The best illusion was one built on a foundation of truth, and he was good at maintaining an illusion. Maybe they've learned to raise ancient Neverborn carcasses, Francisco offered. That's exactly what has me puzzled. McMorning examined the flesh beneath the large and thick magnifying lens mounted to a band around his head. It's not the age of the centuries-old cadaver that has me puzzled. This creature was human. 
puts our business together today. I trust I was an acceptable proxy for your regular guide through the airwaves. Like I touched on earlier, I can assure you that he will be less broken, refreshed, and alive in this chair for next week. You will have to excuse me. I am a very busy man, you see. After the riots that struck our city earlier this year, building work is still afoot, and I have an appointment to oversee reconstruction. These troublemakers even caused trouble for the Right Honourable a Governor General himself. We had to bring in a construction team to repair part of his mansion. Truly a shame. It seems that one of the staff is hailing me from the window. Ah, yes. Once more, I show that I am a mere amateur in show business. I'll have to stay in politics. I forgot to introduce myself. I am, and have been, Lucius Gustavius Fitzwilliam Matheson. Thank you for listening, and stay safe out there, friends. Bad things happen.